chapters. All six chapters. All five chapters. See, that's part of observation is how many chapters are there. How many, anybody count the verses? Just out of curiosity. Nobody's, nobody's jumping ahead on anything yet. How many verses are there? Okay. Um, now, who was it who was here last week that was having trouble finding the, the um, workbook? Are they here tonight? I don't think they're here tonight. There was somebody who was here last week that was having... Oh, I know who it was. They weren't here at the church this morning. It was Marilyn and, uh, and Mike Wells. Okay, the, on the workbook. Everybody, did everybody find a workbook? Hey, John. Everybody find a workbook? Anybody missing anything? Okay. Good. Good. Anybody have any questions? Everybody? No. No. No, I don't. Um, and I'm kind of figuring out how we're going to do some of these things, but I think uh, on the exercises that are in the workbook, I think those are good things to do sort of in class, like in, in the break time, and, and that will help us work together to, to work on learning the, the, the methodology and the process. And in that case, we're going to have to do some things with uh, um, have some other uh, tools, bring some encyclopedias or Bible dictionaries or the things out from the library here, and people can use those to look things up or just go back there and do it back in the library. That will get the library used. So um, let me see. I guess I'm ready. I've got several things I'm scrambling around up here. Okay, for this time, I was looking at the uh, – didn't have our – did everybody get a copy of the syllabus from last time? I know a couple of you weren't here. Pat, you weren't here, but it was emailed out, so people should have it. What's your name? Jonathan. Jonathan. Um, okay, so everybody should have a copy of the syllabus, and everybody should have a copy of the um, couple of other things here. Okay, pass these out to everybody. I'm not sure if we're going to get these, but... This was referenced in, uh, just take about half of those and pass those out and then pass those out. I'm not sure when we'll get to that one, but um, at least you'll have it. I'm passing out the one on the handout on the, uh, I'll hand me one of those two, Barb, because I don't have a copy with me. On the student, the fish, and Agassiz, and then the uh, cruciality of structure, those are the two. Excuse me a minute. My computer, for some reason, is uh, not working here. Let's see. Hmm? No, there shouldn't be anything up there right now. Okay, based on the syllabus, 
Last week we did an overview of the course and we did an overview of the basic tools and resources that we need for Bible study and introduced the importance of Bible study and why we need to do Bible study. And the assignment for last week was to read those first four chapters in Hendrick's book and this week and the Living by the Book week and then this week was to look at chapters five and six as we get started with the whole process of observation. And this is always, always kind of fun, and I enjoy this. So let's, uh, before we get started, let's just have a word of prayer. As usual, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this opportunity we have to come together to think about how we study your word and how and to reflect upon basic principles of biblical study that we may come to be better adept at handling your word, reading your word, and understanding your word. And we pray that as we go forward that you'll help us to uh, be clear on these concepts and how to implement them and realize that it's part of a learning process and so sometimes things don't come as easily and as quickly as they do for other times. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. I've got some, uh, oh, Eddie. Mm-hmm. I've got some video. I'm going to be using video and sound, so I'm plugging in. And we'll probably have to run a test on that in a minute. Let me bump up my my own sound. There we go. Okay, I'll run a video in just a minute. We get started. I want to introduce a basic concept, do a little bit of an overview on the whole process of, of Bible study. And this is a, uh, just, just a little bit of an overview of our basic method, basic methodology. And when you approach Bible study, there's a lot of different ways in which some people do Bible study. There's different ways in which you've done Bible study. Uh, most of us have done Bible study primarily by sitting out in a congregation somewhere and listening to somebody tell us uh, the results of their Bible study. And sometimes that uh, the process by which they teach, like the way I teach, it's, it has more of an exegetical sense to it, but it's never, you don't do it, nobody, I don't care who you've listened to, I don't care what they've said, I don't know anybody who does exegesis in the pulpit because you can't do it in the pulpit. You can give the results of your exegesis in the pulpit, but you cannot do exegesis in the pulpit because exegesis is what you're doing in Bible study methods. It's opening up dictionaries and grammars and looking at all of the different options and saying, okay, it can mean A, B, or C. If it means A, then this would be true. If it means B, then that would be true. If it means C, that would be true. Now, after you've worked through it and you've come to conclusions, then you're presenting conclusions of your exegesis. But exegesis is the process of working through all those alternatives, all those options, reading through. If you're doing something, for example, if uh, in, the, um, in the textbook, uh, Hendricks goes through uh, the process of making observations on Acts 1.8. So if you're looking at Acts 1.8, as you go back to the beginning of Acts 1, you realize that the author is writing to Theophilus, and you discover that this is Luke part two. So you go to uh, 15 Bible dictionaries to look up 
articles on Luke, and each one's going to give you some information that maybe the other ones don't. That's all part of exegesis, is, is doing that kind of a study. And so that's not what you present in the pulpit or as a Sunday school teacher. Or you, you present the results of, of your exegesis. But there are some people that you listen to that give you more of the data, the process. There are others that, that just sort of all they present is, is summary. And so there's, there's different approaches, but what lies behind that is a, uh, a method, a, a logically developed method for analyzing the text of scripture. And anybody can do that. I pointed out last time that sometimes folks from our background get the idea that, oh, well, I can't really do that because I'm not a pastor teacher. Now, I just want to once again affirm that there's nothing in the term pastor or teacher that has any that means anything related to study. Those are communication gifts, not study gifts. Some people think, well, so-and-so has a gift of pastor. You can just open the Bible, and you're going to know what it says. That would be related to probably one of the temporary gifts called the gift of knowledge or the gift of wisdom. That doesn't that that's that doesn't have anything to do with the communication gift. Evangelism and pastor and teacher. If you go to Ephesians four eleven and twelve, lists four gifts: uh, apostles, prophets, um, uh, evangelists, and pastors and teachers. Apostles and prophets, of course, were also leadership gifts, and they passed from the scene. And we have the gifts of of. Um, uh, pastor, teacher, and evangelist, and those are communication gifts. They, the communication gift is communicating the results of study, not the process of study. Anybody can learn the process of study. I know some people who are excellent Bible students. I have a friend of mine. Some of you have gone to pre-trib, have met him. His name is Tim Demi. Tim Demi does, when, when I knew Tim back in seminary and he was a chaplain in the Navy. He's retired now, but he still teaches at the Naval War College. And Tim really doesn't like to teach the Bible. He doesn't like to go, you know, fill the pulpit. He was an hour away from me in Preston City. You want to come over and fill the pulpit? No. Not want to do that. He's got a doctorate from Dallas Seminary. He's got a doctorate from, I think, University of Texas. He's got a master's degree from Cambridge and a master's degree from what was it, Ave Regina, was that? Salve Regina in uh, Providence and two or three other places. The guy has more upper-level degrees than anybody I know, and he, he's a good writer uh, and a scholar, but he does not want to get in the pulpit and teach at all. And so that doesn't fit our paradigm. Anybody can can learn how to study the Bible. It's just a process of, of being really a good reader. In fact, one of the books I didn't mention it as a as a um, uh, as, as in the suggested reading list is a book that's been around for fifty years by Mortimer J. Adler. Anybody know who Mortimer Adler was? He's considered a great American contemporary philosopher. He was more of a traditional philosopher in the, in the tradition of of Thomas Aquinas, more of a classic philosopher, but he was one of the editors of the great book series that uh, um, Encyclopedia Britannica put out. And he wrote a book 
back, I don't know how long ago, 50s or 60s, called How to Read a Book. And if you've got kids or grandkids or anybody who's going to go to school and go to college, the book they need to read between their junior and senior year and their senior year and freshman year in college is How to Read a Book. And it, it, it opens your eyes. I, after I got out of college, I bought a set of the, the great books of the Western world, and that came as a you know freebie along with purchasing the great books. And I read that, and then I read it again, I think, twice while I was in seminary because it had such great insights in how to read. Because reading is not just something passive, which is what a lot of us do when we're reading our favorite novels, but reading is something that's an active dialogue with the author. And the only way he can speak to us is through the text uh, of his book. And we need to be constantly bombarding the text with questions. Why did they say it this way? What, how does that connect with what he said over here? What about this and what about that? And why did he, uh, what does he mean by this term? It's active reading. And so that's an excellent book. It's not about reading the Bible. It's about just reading. And in my years of being a, a Bible student, I would say 50 or 60% of being a good Bible student is just being a good reader and really looking at what the, what the text says. And I know I've been in, um, you know, all the different kinds of uh, Sunday school classes where everybody sits around in a little circle and the Sunday school teacher is just a facilitator and he says, okay, Susie, read Psalm such and such and tell me what it means to you. And, of course, this is the first time in her life that Susie's ever seen Psalm such and so and has no idea what it, what it says, has never studied it, and has to just generate some meaning uh, <clears throat> you know, out of her own intuition and background. And that's, that's very typical because nobody takes the time to really go and study the Bible. And then you have people who sit there and they really don't have good reading skills and they read it and they don't have a clue what it said. When I was in, uh, on the work crew at Camp Penile back when I was in, in high school, 10th grade, 11th grade, 12th grade, uh, Gordon Whitelock was always big on paraphrases. Uh, he was big on the living Bible, and later on he was, you know, really liked reading other, reading paraphrases. Not that he didn't think you should do study from the original languages and or, or reduce the importance of that, but he really had a sense that most people just have a hard time reading and understanding the text. And, and when his son David was heading up the work crew, and David was a Dallas grad, one of the things he would do every day was he would assign us two or three verses in Ephesians. Now, this was back in the 60s when nobody had anything other than a King James Bible, and that really made it difficult to read a verse in the King James Version, which was hard enough to understand, and then put it in your own words and write your own paraphrase. But it forced you to really think through what is this saying, and it's not that that approach is not an analytical approach, but it is one approach to Bible study that helps us to try to put it in our own words just to see if we get an, any kind of an idea of what the sentence is saying, what those words on the page mean. So you have different kinds of approaches that a lot of people do. They sit and they listen to a lecture. 
they read something and they say, oh, I want to find out something about it. And so they look it up and it looks one thing up in a Bible dictionary or they turn to the concordance in the back of their Bible and they look something up there. Or for a lot of people, what they, what they do is they jump immediately to application. Like in the example I used of a Sunday school class, I used, I've seen that happen in what, what some churches have home churches, home Bible study groups. They sit around and what, what does that mean to you? And what, that, what does that mean to you isn't a bad question. It's just in the wrong order. You have to learn what the text is saying and what it means before you can answer the question, what does that mean? In other words, what should I do with this information now that I understand it? And that's application. And the problem is that most people run to application about 20 hours before they should. And as we see, as we go through this process, you've read the overview, the three basic steps are observation, in which looks at the text, what does it say? Um, observation, interpretation, what does it mean? And application, what do I do with it? The more time you spend in observation, the less time you spend in interpretation, and the less time you'll spend on application. Most people want to jump, you know, take, okay, I'm going to make five observations, and now what does it mean? And it's way too soon. What does it mean is really determined by breaking down what the text says. What do I see here? What is being said? And if you spend a lot of time just on that initial uh, initial event, then when you get to the point, what does it mean, you've already limited your options to, to, to something that's very narrow because you've done enough work at the beginning. And if you've narrowed your interpretation options down, what does it mean? It becomes pretty clear that, uh, what we're to do with it. But if you jump through the, or run through the first two steps too quickly, then you're coming up with all kinds of creative applications that really have nothing at all to do with what the text says. So it's important to have that kind of a, a methodological approach, and you're not just doing it in terms of just jumping to application. Another way in which people do Bible study is they just pick up a commentary. They pick up their study Bible. Oh, what does this verse mean? They pick up their study Bible. They look in the notes to see what it means, and what. Uh, and if not enough information is given there, then they jump to a commentary, and they read what the uh, writer of the commentary says. Now, a lot of times, I, t- I tell this to pastors, I say, there are a lot of times we're very, very busy, and a lot of times we don't have have time. We, we have to take shortcuts uh, because things happen during the week. Somebody dies, somebody's in the hospital, somebody's sick, your car breaks down, all kinds of things happen. And so, so going through all of the steps all the time, are not all, it's not always possible. And sometimes even if you have, uh, you know, 100 hours during the week to focus on one passage, it's still not enough because it's a difficult passage. So sometimes you have to take that shortcut to go to a good commentary to see at least what the options are, and that sort of orients you to what might be going on uh, in the passage. But ideally, that's not the way to study the Bible. Then you have the people who have sort of the mystical approach, and they're just going to pray about it and hope that the Holy Spirit tells them what the passage means, and they get to shortcut any kind of uh, hard work or anything anything difficult. But Bible study, like anything else, is is in one way a science. 
In another way, it's an art, but it's a science in that it follows certain, uh, certain strict rules of order, and there is a methodology to it. And so you take certain steps and you go in, in certain orders, in, the, in a certain order. And so the first step is observation, which is simply asking the question, what does it say? What do I see here in the passage? What am I, what am I looking at? Psalm 119.18 says, I open my eyes, Lord, that I may behold wonderful things uh, from your law. Observation says, what do I see? And in observation, you're going to generate a lot of data. Now, does anybody here know basic principles of, of brainstorming? What do you do when you're just having a brainstorming session? Technically, in a brainstorming session, what you need to do is just have a just a stream of consciousness of, of, of just ideas flow out. You don't stop and evaluate the ideas. Your 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 brain should be in a sort of a creative mode, and you're just going to let ideas flow, and you're going to write them down. The next step after you've written down 30, 40, 50, 60 ideas, now you go back and you say, "Oh, that first idea that that that's not going to work." And then you look, oh, that might work, and you rate your your the ideas that you came up with in your brainstorming session, and maybe 80% of them are, for one reason or another, really not workable. That's a judgment evaluative position. Your brain's functioning in a different way. A lot of times people start brainstorming, and they'll say, well, I got an idea. No, that won't work. Well, you just stopped your creative juices. You know, you 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 stop the process. Well, observation is kind of like that. What do you see? You just start writing down all the things that you see, and you don't really stop and say, well, is that right? What's that? You just write down the ideas, and later you'll come back and evaluate those ideas, and you'll study them out and work work them out and see where, where the process takes you. But in that initial stage of observation, you need to just pay attention to the text and write down anything and everything that occurs to you as you're uh, writing it now, I can't remember in the in the book. Does it have the story of the student, the fish, and Agassiz? That's what's in the, the handout. This is, I think, this is a little longer version. It tells you about, gives you the summary in the book, but this is the the, the long version. And um, Agassiz was actually the uh, uh, taught in the mid 18th century at Harvard, and he taught science. And as he would teach on the scientific method, and that's really what I'm talking about when we have a method for doing Bible study, it's a scientific method in that it follows these these same procedures. And this is the same procedures you have in the laboratory or in science. You observe data. And only after you've really gotten to know the data do you then draw some some conclusions about what it means. And then... After that, you draw conclusions about about applications. And one of the little things that Agassiz would do is when he would get a freshman class come in and he would have a whole classroom of students, he would uh, sit up on the stage and he said, now I want you to carefully observe what I am doing. And he would pick up a beaker and he would look at the liquid in the beaker and he would sniff the beaker and he would look at it and twist it and turn it, smell it. And then he would take his finger and put it in the beaker and then he would taste it. 
and then he would set it down, and he would then hand it to the students for them to pass it around. And it would go down the row, and they would sniff it and make all kinds of faces, and then they would taste it and wrinkle up their noses and, and uh, you know, make all kinds of uh, uh, of sounds, sound effects when they would taste the vile-tasting liquid and would go through all the class. And then at the end, when it came back, he would say, now, one of the most important lessons of observation is that, that when I was tasting the liquid, I would put my index finger in the liquid and taste my middle finger because urine has, does not have a good flavor. So it's very important to pay attention to the details. And, uh, and so that's, this is always a great thing. We have to look at the text and pay attention to the, to the, to the text. So it's good to have a notebook, a notepad, uh, have a pen and write things down as you're, as you are doing Bible study. Now Hendricks gives you a definition that he drilled into us that method is methodicalness methodicalness in taking certain steps in a certain order with a view towards being uh, receptive to information and reproductive, being able to reproduce that that in- information in terms of being a teacher. So to be effective in being a teacher, then you have to first be a good learner. And a good learner isn't someone who can sit and listen to a lecture or a, a sermon or Bible class taught by somebody else and take good notes and then go regurgitate those notes to somebody else. We've all done that kind of a thing at times, but it really doesn't work that well. It's uh, Sometimes you have pastors who do that, and, and we all imitate our mentors, whether you're a football player, basketball player, actor, whatever your position in life, somebody was teaching you and was a good example of what you want to do, and you begin by imitating them. But it's not long before you get beyond them and let your own personality, your own style, uh, reveal itself in what you're doing. Otherwise, you really haven't learned it. And I know... Um, from the field of acting, a lot of times you see movies remade. And sometimes we really like movies that were made the first time with the actors in it. And, and we can't quite see somebody else playing, uh, certain roles like, um, uh, the role John Wayne had of, of Ringo in Stagecoach. But later on you watch it and it's, uh, Willie Nelson and, you know, he just makes that role his own. It's Willie Nelson. He's not playing John, he's not playing John Wayne. He's Willie Nelson playing that role. Or you look at other, other films like that and you have different actors who make that role their own. They're not trying to imitate another actor who played that role. But sometimes you get, uh, teachers or pastors who try to imitate the personality or the style of another pastor or teacher, and that's just a very freshman kind of uh, mistake to make, and we've all done that. It's part of the process, but it should be just part of that that initial uh, learning area. So we have to learn, we have to develop our own method, our own procedure, and the basic process is the same. And the most important thing in doing Bible study is just knowing the Word. You have to read the Bible. You have to make it your own. You have to read it again. Again, that's why between now and next Tuesday night, I want you to read James, all five chapters, 
every day until about next Friday or Saturday morning, and then I want you to start writing some observations down on uh, James 1.19. But until then, you need to read it and read it and read it to get the whole context of the book of James. And then when you start applying some of the principles we're going to go over tonight in terms of observation, it will make uh, some more uh, some more sense to you. And as you read and become familiar with it and you read this story of the student, the fish, and Agassiz, that's what he would have his students do. He'd come in and give him a fish, put it in, it's in a pickle jar in formaldehyde, and he would just tell him, you know, okay, write down everything you can see about the fish. He'd come back a couple of hours. Great job, great job. Okay, keep going, keep going. You've, you know, write down just as much as you've already written. And when I was a student at Dallas, first time we got into this type of approach, uh, it's not, wasn't the first assignment, but about the third assignment was to go home and write down 25 observations on Acts 1-8. That's pretty simple. Come back to, for the next class, you've got to write 25 more. Oh, that's getting a little more difficult. Then you've got to write 25 more. And, 20, and this went on for three weeks. And then the last time when you've already written 200 observations on Acts 1-8, the, your, your assignment is to go home and write as many more as you can knowing that the record is over 785. <laughs> and it's just called familiarization. Now, you do that with your work. Most of you have been out of school for a while. You've got jobs, and you know what it is to really become familiar with your with your subject matter, your field of work, and really knowing and coming to understand that. Well, that's just what you need to do in reference to the Bible. So you need to... Read the Bible for yourself because that enables you to learn how to think for yourself in terms of what the text says. Now, when we get into interpretation, that's where we start to evaluate some of our observations on the basis of the work of other people. But initially, we need to come up with whatever our, our own observations are, and it's it's amazing. Sometimes you'll come up with some stuff and you'll think that's great, and you and then you'll read the commentaries and go, "That was really silly." But that's the growth process, and that's how how we all learn. And it also gives you a great sense of accomplishment when you see things and observe things as you go through the text, and then you discover, well, that really is significant. That that really does mean something. It wasn't ju- a, just a trivial. Uh, observation. So we start this process, and <clears throat> it starts with observation. And in observation, we ask the question, what does it say? What do I see in the text? And in doing this, initially, what, we're, what we want to focus on is things such as, as just basic terms, basic terms like what are the key nouns? And I'm going to, uh, you can, if you want to, you can open your Bible to Acts 1-8. Uh, Hendricks does a good job of listing the observations there. Acts 1-8 <coughs> states, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witness, or you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the end of the earth. So it starts off with your nouns. So you ask, what are the key nouns? What are the key terms? What are the key nouns in verse 8? Well, the key nouns would be power, Holy Spirit, you. Who's he talking to? The pronoun you needs to be defined. Uh, witnesses, what does that mean? 
who is me, who's the speaker, uh, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, what do they have in relationship to one another? How does Jerusalem relate to Judea and Samaria and then to the end of the earth? What's going on there? So you identify your nouns. You can underline them, circle them, put squares around them, whatever it takes. Then you identify your clauses. And to identify a clause, now the difference between a phrase and a clause is a clause has a subject and a verb. It may not be an independent clause, which we'll talk a lot more about these things, but an independent clause can stand on its own as a sentence. A dependent clause, uh, when you go to the store, see, that doesn't, that's a temporal dependent clause. It it's, doesn't stand on its own as a sentence. It's just talking about a time. It's an adverbial clause when you go to the store, but it has a subject, you, and it has a verb, go, so that you have... Uh, to identify your clauses, and when you do that, you identify your independent clause. I'll be going. I'm just giving you an, an overview here, and we're going to go th- drill down on all these things as we go through the process. But you look at you look at clauses, you look at phrases. Uh, a phrase would be something like. Um, uh, to the end of the earth. See, there's no verb there, there's no subject there, it's just a phrase, to the end of the earth, or of the Holy Spirit, that's a phrase. It doesn't have a subject and a verb. We also look at um, at verbs. That's the action in the sentence. What kind of action? Who's performing the action? Uh, is it continuous action? Is it just a snapshot? Uh, that is determined sometimes by grammar. Then we have prepositions, in, on, around, behind, after, when. All of these prepositions are important. In fact, some of those small words, prepositions, and, and then some other particles like connectives, and, now, therefore, wherefore. You always have to see where, if there's a therefore, you have to see what it's there for. Very good, John. You remember that from the summer. You have to see what it's there for. So... Observation looks at all of this uh, different information as we get into a particular passage. So we have these three steps, observation, interpretation, and application. Now I'm going to give you just some fun things to do here for a couple of minutes, uh, just a little test of your powers for observation. And I want you to tell me how many people you see in this picture. Just sit down there, write, watch, look, write it down. Okay, how many people see more than 10? Good. How many people see more than 8? How many of you see more than 6? Okay, Jerry, what do you see? 7. Okay, what are they? Okay, you have, first of all, the two really obvious ones. Yes. You have the old lady on the left and the old man on the right. 
And then where their eyes are, you have another figure here and a figure here playing a guitar. This figure has his hands up uh, around his hat. So that's four. There's a woman there, so that's five. Um, the earring over here looks like a, a body. And yeah, it does. And I've tried to get a higher definition picture of this in camp. So that looks like there is a figure in that earring, so that's six. And where was seven? The background. Background? Yes. Where? In the, in, the, in the clothing. Down here, in lower or upper? Lower? That looks like a figure to me. Yeah, see, I think this is a face here. Yes. I think that's a face when you have somebody lying down here. I also think that um, looks like a face right there. Yes. So that would be eight. Uh-huh. I think that, that's more of a hand to me, but I guess it could be a face. It, well, it's the way the fingers are put together right here. It looks like it's, again, somebody who's leaning back and looking up, and this would be the, the legs coming down this way and the waist here, and then, then here's a head and a face right there. There may be more. Okay, that's, that's pretty good. Okay, let's go to another one. How many people do you see in this picture? Well, I said, how many people do you see? Dogs are people too. I understand that. <laughs> okay, how many people see ten? You see ten? So. You're doing good, Pat. Okay, identify them. Start from the top to the bottom. On the right, I see a face at us and a face facing to the right. Okay, that would be this face here. I see two there. Do you see what? I see one facing us and one looking off to the right. Really? I see one shadow. It's either shadow or it's another one. So a reflection would be. Yeah, I think you're right because there would be the lips right there. Yeah, okay, so that's two right there. And then the main figure, obviously the big figure, and then the lady there, that's two more. And then where the nose and the eyes and everything, I see someone there. And then I see uh, the the gentleman making up the eye part. I see somebody facing actually forward with him. Right here? Yes. Facing forward. Right there. Yeah. Right there. I see a that's face six. right there facing forward. Uh, and then in the, the lady in her dress, I see three upside down people. Oh, yeah, that's right. And then, and then I count the reflection of the big guy's head in the rock. Isn't she holding a baby? She's yeah. holding a baby. Oh, and then there's two in the upper left by the bird. That's eleven or twelve. Three up there. There's one here. Is there another one over here? I've seen, I've seen this one, but is there another one? Oh yeah, there's another one there. And there's another one there and one there. Right of the bird, there's one facing off to the left. Okay, so how many is that? Yeah, I didn't even get that far. <laughs> that's more that's than like 10. 15, yeah, that's 11 or 12. Very good. Y'all are so good. Now, I love this one. 
I want you to tell me how many horses are in this picture. What? You see another one? Yeah. Where? To the left of the bird, on the perch that he saw, there's actually two pieces right there. One looking to the left. There are. Okay. Good. I think there's someone on the relief on the stone just below the bird. Here? Down here? In there, I think there's someone on the yeah, I often thought there was one there. I couldn't quite. I see, I see the eye in the mouth. Yeah. Okay, you guys are doing great. Now, why don't you tell me how many horses are in this picture? Anybody have more than six? What's what's the key to counting? Legs. Legs, that's right. That's right. I don't think I've ever seen more than six. Okay, you have one here. These are the front legs. Then you have the back of one here. Those back legs, then, but then you've got those are the back legs of the one in the back, and there's one. But you got more legs here, so there's an extra horse. There's one right in the center. In there, and then there's one. Yeah, right there. That's one. Yeah, and then you've got another smaller one right here. And then there's one right above that. I don't see one. Is it five? Yeah, you see another set of legs. Here's another leg right here. And right there, you're, that's the chest of the five, other horses. Yeah, five horses. That's right. That's a fun one. Okay, here's, a, here's an oldie but goodie. How many of you all see an old lady in that picture? How many of you all see a young woman in that picture? How many of you see both? You don't see the old lady? Okay, this, this is her mouth. This is her chin. This is her nose. She's she's looking to her left, and she has this fur collar up. And then there's a young woman, and you're looking at her from the back left of her jaw. And this is her jawline and her ear and her eyelash and her little nose here. And then this is her, her dark hair, and then she's got a white scarf. That's good. Okay. How many squares are here? Thirty. Yeah, that was in the book. Thirty-one. One square. No, there's more than one square there. Hmm. See, the whole thing is a square, and then you have sixteen individual squares, right? So that's a total of seventeen, and then you have four squares. No, no, you don't have four fours. You have Three, six, nine, four fours. So that's 26. So you have one, two, three, four. Then you have one, two, three, four. Then you have one, two, three, four. You do the same thing here. You have these four, 
then these four, and then these four. Then you come down here and you have these four, these four, and these four. So that's 9 and 17 and 25. A rectangle. So what? You have the one in the center. Rectangle doesn't count. You're just looking for squares. A rectangle is a square. And then you have a square. A square is supposed to have four equal sides. A rectangle is only a square if it has four equal sides. Okay, then you have your, your threes across. Three across this way, that's one. Three across this way is two. Three across this way is three. And three across this way is four. So that's four and 26 is 30. And then you have the one great big one where it... We, we already counted that. Oh, you did. We started off with that one as one. So that's 30. Okay. Now, the point of all these fun little things is that we have to learn to really pay attention to what we're looking at and not just go with the easy thing that just first appears to us. This is what calls for a little creativity. This was in the book, too. Did any of you all figure this one out? How to draw the engineer raises his hand over here. Draw four lines. Draw four lines and... Connect all the dots. John figured it out. Anybody else figured it out? Well, you have to think, truly think outside the box. You start here and you go up to here and then down to here then across and then up. And that connects your... Four lines without going retracing anything. Okay? Good. You guys have done well. Okay. We're going to take a little break, and then we'll come back and just and press on to some other things. So take about five or six minutes. I'm not going to give you an assignment yet. We'll probably get to where we're doing something before the end of class. Thank <laughs> you.